hello, hello. Welcome to Comic Book Herald Live. Hey everybody, I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. This is CBH Live, the weekly show where I talk about the comics that are coming out primarily right now, Marvel's X-Men and Judgment Day tie-ins. Those of you who are hopping in in the chat here, get your questions in, get your thoughts in, get your notes in, and uh, and we can go from there. Let's jump right in and talk about some comics today. Uh, good, good batch of Judgment Day tie-ins. It was a loaded week today. We were going to be talking about Immortal X-Men number six, Death to the Mutants number two, Marauders number six, Wolverine number 24. Um, what else? What else? There was a little uh, Nightcrawler cameo in She-Hulk number six. There was, uh, there's an issue of New Mutants that I have not finished yet that is not Judgment Day tied in. But, uh, but we're going to talk about all that and definitely whatever questions you all have and we'll see where it takes us and whatever else, you know, comes up. You want to talk She-Hulk, you want to talk twerk, twerking, I can't even say it <laughs> without stuttering. It's all white I am. <laughs> we could talk about all of the news and excitement in pop culture. Okay, so let me know if, uh, if anything, if you have any issues with the audio and all that fun stuff, but otherwise... We'll dive right in here and talk about what's going on in Judgment Day. I should mention, R.E. colon Judgment Day, some big news developing on that front on the Comic Herald Kraken Krakoa channel. I can't say what it is yet, but all I will say is if you are interested in X-Men comics and you're interested in Immortal X-Men and you're interested in talking Judgment Day, you might want to subscribe to the channel and, and join these live streams for uh, a super cool interview and, uh, and and conversation that I'm planning once Judgment Day is finished. Once Judgment Day is done, we're going to do an exclusive sort of post-game report, okay? Like we've done with the big events here on X-Men Comics, uh, but this one should be pretty, pretty good, okay? So if you like that stuff, if you like the conversation here, like and subscribe to Comic Carol here on YouTube. I even occasionally do things other than live streams, a la... The video I released this past weekend, Kraken Krakoa proper on the connections between the X-Men and Celestials. I don't remember the individual's name, so apologies for, for not having this reference, but somebody in the comments on one of the videos on the Judgment Day said, hey, I would love it if you would do an X-Men Celestials connections video. That got my brain whirring, and I dove in. So there is a video currently on the channel. It's Kraken Krakoa, I think number 215. Um, that is all about the history of Celestials and X-Men connections throughout history. Uh, throughout Marvel Comics history, it brings in a lot with Apocalypse, with Mr. Sinister, um, with a super underrated and, and rarely discussed run on X-Factor from the 80s, and uh, and some other stuff, too. Talk a little Rick Remender, Uncanny X-Force, all that fun stuff. That video is live on the channel if you want to check it out, okay? So... Get the get the questions in, get the thoughts in here in the comments. Uh, obviously, all I ask be respectful of those around you, and uh, and we'll have at it. Okay, but yeah, we're definitely gonna start today with Immortal X Men number six. This is everything today is a tie-in that comes after the events of Judgment Day number three. So if you're not caught up on that and you're not caught up on the comics today, some spoilers may follow, especially the comics as we go through uh, individually, okay? As we go through, like, spoilers will follow. So if you're worried about that, definitely go check them out, all right? Uh, but otherwise, yeah, all the times today fit after after Judgment Day number three. Really the only little bit of continuity reading order stuff that felt applicable, that felt important to me, 
was Death to the Mutants number two technically should come before Immortal X-Men number six uh, in terms of the continuity and the reading order. And that, of course, is on comicbookherald.com. There's the world's greatest live update reading order uh, of the Judgment Day event in its entirety. But otherwise, basically everything can come after Judgment Day number three at pretty much any point in time. Today's comics, the, the theme right now, as we are kind of in the middle, in the meat of this event, is not a heck of a lot of development, so there, there are some interesting clues and threads that we can pull on. Um, but the theme is primarily the Celestial, the progenitor that was built by two Eternals, Ajax and Mockery, and Tony Stark and Mr. Sinister. It, the theme is how will they judge the Marvel Universe, right? So we see a lot of individual judgments going on. Now, in the past, we've seen... Last week, we saw Cyclops judged. He was judged... Big ol' thumbs up because he was cool and he talked tough. <laughs> Captain America got a big ol' thumbs down because he's a square and he's too hopeful. I mean, I got to say, this progenitor's criteria at this point in time primarily seems to be, are you really cool and not full of it? <laughs> like, like, that is definitely the prevailing thread on the thumbs up and thumbs down. We're definitely seeing way more thumbs downs. Then we are thumbs up, but what we're seeing uh, this week especially is basically each individual, or often each individual, is getting like a personalized visit from the celestial, often in the form of their greatest sort of failure or or one of the things that they fear the most, perhaps, and then they have a little conversation, and then celestial says, you stink, thumbs down, right? And that's primarily how it goes. Uh, we did learn in Immortal X-Men that I guess Kate Pride passed, which... Um, yeah, as a hero makes sense, but also, like, she said the un N-word an uncomfortable number of times. Like, I feel like that could have factored in to the tilt of the thumb a little more heavily, okay? But I guess the Celestial, he, he listen, how many X-Men comics has he read? Really? We don't even know. Um, but yeah, I mean, some, some wild stuff is happening here with the Celestial judging everyone. We get a lot of focus on that with some cool stuff with Destiny in particular in Immortal X-Men. Immortal X-Men, of course, is written by Karen Gillan. We got art by Lucas Wernick, David Carroll on colors, Clayton Powell's on letters, okay? Um, and uh, I'm just going to pull questions here in the chat before I move forward because otherwise I'm going to lose them and I'm not going to have time to talk about them. If my mouse will work and let me do that, I will... What is happening here? Oh, my goodness. My goodness. Technology, right? Okay, that's not happening. We'll continue anyway. Let's throw it to the images. Beautiful Jim Bartell, She-Hulk, and Nightcrawler cover. Gosh, I love that cover. Okay, Mortal X-Men number six. Okay, so big development here. Uh, Storm is in the meeting. Okay, she's back from Morocco. I think we saw this recently. And uh, Uranus, she references that, like, okay, Uranus still has machines on Morocco. They're still causing devastation. So she needs to get back there. And, and help out, right? Um, but one thing she mentions kind of in passing, and this comes up twice uh, in, in Immortal X-Men, but then also in Marauders, is that Legion saved a lot of Araki, um, a, a lot of the citizens, right, of this planet, of planet Araco. Um, this comes up again in Marauders in terms of a lot of the Araki are in the altar, which is the space Legion has created in the astral plane to, like, hang <laughs> I don't, you know that's in the size spurrier stuff that's been in kind of through the end of way of x and now into legion of x 
I don't know if this was confirmed previously. Maybe it was in X-Men Red and I just missed it. What I remembered from X-Men Red was like Legion shows up, he takes on Uranus and is very quickly actually defeated. Um, but, you know, kind of because of the pacing of the comic, like we definitely did not have all the details. So maybe maybe the fact that like Legion has saved a lot of the Eric people um, was known, and I'm just forgetting because it's been a few weeks, but that actually feels kind of significant because it's a, it's twice mentioned that, like, Legion has done some work here to retain some of the population. I mean, right now, we saw Uranus devastate Mars, aka Planet Araco, in Judgment Day number one. We saw the fallout and kind of how it worked in X-Men Red, and we haven't actually had a follow-up on that, right? So I think it's important at this juncture in the event to be like, don't worry, they're not all gone. Like we do actually need some confirmation of that <laughs> because right now it's kind of up in the air. I think the next, I think next week, X-Men Red number six comes out. Uh, obviously that's going to be very, very important in terms of all of those, that follow-up. I'm sure it will deal with what exactly happened with Legion Uranus. Like we don't, we don't really know, I think, uh, unless I miss something again, um, but that'll be important. Right, that'll be important. So we definitely gotta gotta follow up on that next week in X Men Red number six, which I'm very very excited about. I mean, I think I think I'm still leaning X Men Red as my one A to Immortal X Men's one B, um, but certainly certainly it's a battle. And as I say every week, it's so cool to have dueling aces in the X Men line of comics. Uh, it just means we get good stuff, you know, week after week. Right? I do like them coming out on different as well. Right? Which I. It'll fluctuate, but I do enjoy that. Okay, so that was an interesting piece, I thought, in terms of Quiet Council conversation. Um, I thought the pacing of Immortal X-Men, so this is the, technically it's the Sebastian Shaw issue, right? So like each of the 12 issues, the first 12 issues of Gillen's Immortal X-Men um, are focused on one member of the Quiet Council. So we've we've seen this, um, it's it's led to some really cool moments, like, like Destiny's Focus in Immortal X-Men number three. Um, here we get Sebastian Shaw, right? But the comic opens with, you know, it's got to actually pull on the connective tissue of Judgment Day and also the Immortal X-Men narrative thread. So we get a little back and forth between Sinister and Destiny, kind of showing some behind the scenes of what actually happened during Judgment Day number three when Sinister contacted Destiny and told her, um, hey, I think we can actually destroy the Celestial, uh, but you're going to have to get the boats to do it. And then you see Destiny scheming and planning for how to actually make that happen. Um, I thought the data page usage was really cool here to see Destiny basically calculating all of how the Quiet Council votes would go given certain scenarios, one of which was making sure that the vote was cast while Professor X was dead and in the process of resurrection because throughout the entire Judgment Day event, basically, um, Professor X has just been engaging in telepathic war <laughs> with the Eternals. Like, some, like he's just kind of sitting there, so you don't see it a ton. We've seen some of the psychic imagery. But, like, Professor X is doing work to the point of, you know, getting killed the previous issue and then needing to be resurrected. He's super salty, of course, about them taking a vote, you know, while he was out. Um, but that's all part of Destiny's schemes. And you get some Destiny commentary on the different voting. Uh, with the note that I probably enjoyed the most was... Mystique's likelihood of voting yes to destroy the Celestial actually went up a percentage when it meant it would do damage to humans. <laughs> so, like, part of Destiny's calculation was like, okay, if we can minimize the damage this is going to go to humans, how does that actually increase our odds 
um, in terms of the votes, right? Like Hope Summers, for example, was like, she's way more likely to vote for attacking the Celestial if it's less likely that, you know, a country is blown up. Mystique actually went the other way. <laughs> Destiny was like, in the footnote, was like, even I'm a little concerned by that. Uh, it was also really interesting to, to see Gillen note in Destiny's commentary there that Destiny has percentages for herself in terms of how she'll vote. And her, the note was basically like, yeah, it's always real weird <laughs> that even I don't know, like I know the percentage chances of myself, but then I even I don't know until we get there like which way it's going to go, like thinking about in terms of her own destiny. And one thing she keeps saying, you know, kind of the tagline of destiny in this approach is there is no destiny, right? Like, like futures are not locked in. This is not guaranteed, right? There's fluctuations, all sorts of things can change. She's very, very adamant about that. Okay. So, all right. So that's, that's all kind of leading into then what is otherwise a Sebastian Shaw issue. Um, in terms of the pacing, though, again, so we have this conversation. We're getting a little Sebastian Shaw back and forth. In the middle of the Quiet Council conversation, all of a sudden there's a page turn, and it's a really jarring pacing execution with Exodus suddenly being judged by the Celestial. I found this very confusing <laughs> the first time I read it because we're in Sebastian Shaw's head. We're thinking about the votes, and we're thinking about Sebastian Shaw, and we know it's his story. And then suddenly there's a celestial there. Um, actually, it's not a celestial. It's like a demon. You know, the celestial shows up in the form of other things. It shows up basically in the form of a demon holding Eobar Garrington. <laughs> okay. A former Black Knight. We'll get to that. Um, and it's actually Exodus's judgment. But apparently everyone can see it because Sebastian Shaw walks into the battle, basically, and, like, punches out the... No, he punches Exodus, I guess, until he wakes up. And, and then eventually the Celestial's like, all right, good job. I like you, Exodus, and he leaves. It's very weird. I had a lot of questions about this sequence. I don't think it worked, frankly, uh, in terms of the comic. Um, but what I do love about it, like, like extraordinarily love, is it's another reference to 1996's Black Knight Exodus number one. <laughs> this has happened twice now that Gillen has gone to this well. It's one of the, I would say it's one of my favorite continuity polls um, of like all of the Hoxpox era research that I've done was research was reading 1996's Black Knight Exodus number one. You know, this, this one shot. It's a thing I would never have read. I read it because Apocalypse is in it. Um, it's just like this wild conglomeration of you have an old Black Knight Eobar Garrington, you have Exodus during his crusade days when he's going just by Bennett, right? You have Apocalypse as like a, a major player, and then you have Cersei, the Eternal, is also present. So it's like super wildly relevant for this event and kind of the characters in play. Um, but again, it's this one shot that like nobody but for these wild continuity connections, nobody would be talking about this. Like, it's not like <laughs> it's not like an Eisner winning one shot or something. Okay, so anyway, so if you're reading this and you're confused, uh, I was too. But the, the additional confusion on top of that, I would imagine for a lot of folks, is seeing somebody show up and be like, I'm Garrington, and just be like, who the hell is Garrington? Like, what? What are you talking about? Um, so again, Eobar Garrington is a black knight, uh, there's a legacy of Black Knights, okay, before Dane Whitman is the one that most Marvel fans will know. He's been a Defender, an Avenger, um, 
now played by Jon Snow in the MCU, right? That that stuff. Uh, but he's he's there in the Crusades era, and he's Bennett's best pal. Uh, historically, maybe a lot more given, I would say, Gillen's interpretive sequence here. Uh, definitely had, I think, more romantic attachment I was reading into it than I, I knew to expect between Garrington and Exodus. Um, but that's what was happening there. <laughs> it's a really wild uh, sequence. And it does not have much to do with Sebastian Shaw's, you know, sort of journey here and character study, with the exception of the fact that uh, it lets Sebastian Shaw have a really cool moment, and it gives Gillen another opportunity to do a cool line about Hellfire. And there are a lot of those <laughs> in this issue. And frankly, I ate it up. I ate it up, right? Sebastian Shaw, longtime leader of the Hellfire Club. Um, I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Listen, maybe too many, <laughs> maybe too many. Not for me, not for me. I was all in on it. Okay, so Sebastian Shaw, basically, he nominates himself um, to make a deal with the Eternals. The X-Men are talking about how the fact that there's, you know, a faction of Eternals that don't believe in this war and don't buy into what Drew is selling and want this thing to be over. So he goes to one of his New York Hellfire Club locations and he's like, cool, I'll have the meeting, I'll do the deal. Uh, he meets... I expected this would be like, you know, uh, Icarus and crew. He meets actually with Eros, a.k.a. David Bowie meets Harry Styles, right? And uh, he meets with Eros, who has recently been freed from the exclusion. Now, this is why I say Death to the Mutants number two should technically come in terms of the reading order before Immortal X-Men number six, because we'll talk about this a little bit, but Judgment Day number three closed on the reveal of like, oh, hey, we're freeing Eros. Uh, Death to the Mutants gives a little behind the scenes on that and then and then we see eros making deals with sebastian shaw we don't get a heck of a lot um of detail as to the nature of their conversation but we do get the fact that you know that's who's meeting here okay uh now sebastian is making deals on the side for like all sorts of wealth uh, as he has always done there's a nice nod in terms of continuity here one i would argue confusing element of the claremont era x-men is Sebastian Shaw is constantly involved, or like, not constantly, but like every so often it pops up, behind the scenes thing, he's involved with Project Wide Awake. And increasingly, as it develops, it's like Sebastian Shaw is investing in Sentinels and stuff like that. And I always did also find that kind of confusing, because it's like, well, he's a mutant, <laughs> and they'll come and kill him too. Uh, and if you read things like the Jerry Duggan referenced classic X-Men number, ooh, what is it, six maybe? The one where um, Lord Chantel is killed by a sentinel. Like, negative experiences with these mutant hunting robots, which Sebastian Shaw has funded. But there's a nice continuity now where Gillen's like, he's writing in Sebastian Shaw's head and is basically saying something to the effect of, you know, people often ask me if I regret that. And he's like, yeah, my only regret, regret is I, I didn't invest sooner. Because he would have made more money. You know, and I think it, it does centralize and really, really hone in on like, okay, what is Sebastian Shaw's deal? Uh, wealth. That's it. That's it. That's all it is, right? Uh, he has the epic power move. The epic power move of making his first million dollars, okay, making his first million dollars, going to his dad's grave and lighting it on fire with the confidence to say, I'll make more easily, and, uh, and then he gets in a hellfire line another one. <laughs> Such a power move. <laughs> Such a power move. I would not even do that with a $20 bill with my worst enemy. 
I am not confident enough I would see that 20 again. <laughs> but Sebastian walks out with a briefcase full of a mill. Um, anyway, he's making deals for not just wealth, but immortal wealth. Okay, he's going for immortal wealth. And we know that because this comic ends with Sebastian tapping into the mystical efforts of Selene, which we saw in Immortal X-Men number two. She was apparently working with or in contact with uh, a mysterious figure arising out of a, a pentagram who can make deals with you. Feels like maybe it's going to be Mephisto, but he's been pretty busy in the pages of Jason Aaron's Avengers. It is, in fact, Mother Righteous. Mother Righteous. Um, that was a big twist uh, in terms of my expectations, <laughs> in terms of it having an impact. Now, Mother Righteous is a character that has been very recently created uh, in the pages of Legion of X, actually. Um, I think the Mephisto comps are going to be there until we get to know this character a little bit more. I guess she's not from hell. She's from, uh, they live in the astral plane, which is why, you know, she's had connections with Legion in Legion of X. <sighs> I, it, Legion of X has not worked for me. I've talked about this. Um, I, all I know about mother righteous is she's like wheeling and dealing and making deals and very Mephisto-y and seemingly can't be trusted. I'm very interested to see now what Gillen can do with this with the Sebastian Shaw connection. It makes sense. It makes sense. Um, but it was definitely not... Like, when you're when I'm waiting for that drop, you know, when I'm waiting for that character reveal, I'm definitely waiting for something that, like, will be familiar. I'll be like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And I did not see this coming, um, but it's super new. and And it does not have... The, the benefit that long-running comics continuity can give you, which is, you know, oh, I know them, right? Oh, I know Mephisto. Not that I wanted it to be Mephisto, right? Um, but it, this does not have that, which is fine, which is fine. There can still be a good story that comes out of that. I'm just, like, so out on Legion of X, I, I was like, oh, her? But we'll see. We'll see what can be done. Um, okay, that's Immortal X-Men, number six. It's good, I would say. Uh, I probably like Death to the Mutants number two a little more, which is the other Kieran Gillen written issue that came out today. We'll talk about that next. Get in your questions, get in your thoughts. I'll try and grab some here as I get a big old sip of water. All right. Let's talk Death to the Mutants number two. Uh, Death to the Mutants number one ended with somebody, I think maybe you know Icarus and, and Gilgamesh were the last people there, writing Death to the Eternals. Uh, on the wall, that is that recurs here in Death to the Mutants. That is like Icarus's mantra now is basically he has seen the cost of being an Eternal, the number of humans that have died as a result, the fact that they really are missionless. You know, they have lived their lives with these three very Asimovian robot, you know, laws that Gillen has written for them, um, and that those laws just do not even make sense anymore. You know, like following the celestial will does not work anymore. The celestial plot was a lie. They have now built a new celestial, which is its own form of sort of sacrilege and hubris. And Icarus is actually, I would say, right <laughs> in this rare instance where he's just like, we are completely directionless, like like the Eternals as a people. And then he's extended that to death to the Eternals. Okay, so um, so he's the one thinking that obviously the Eternals as a whole are not. One thing that... Gillen does really well here, and I really enjoy the art here by we got Gui Villanova and Alex uh, Guimaraes. Apologies for any mispronunciations there. Doing the art on this, which looks really good. Um, 
we see a really interesting connection here. So throughout Judgment Day, I've been theorizing that the Hex are these six giant robot Eternals. Robots just like shorthand, but they, they don't really look like robots, right? Just like monster transformer kind of things. They look cool as hell. Um, they are weapons of Uranus, effectively, but they're also Eternals. And my suspicion has been they're connected to the six humans that have kind of gotten, we've kind of gotten inside their heads and gotten their thoughts throughout Judgment Day. We see one of them here, I believe Sally, right? So we see Sign the Mimitor connecting with Sally, you know, his person is what I'm imagining. I'm imagining that my theory has been that, you know, that is the person who would die if that member of the Hex dies, because we see one of them die um, after an individual in the Hex dies, okay? So I think they're all connected there. Uh, but we, not just do we see them connected, but we see them, like, texting, <laughs> <laughs> like they're having um, a conversation through like a dating app or some sort of technology. I don't know. I'm old. I don't use those things. Um, but they're like talking about poetry and they're making friends and it hasn't gotten weird yet. So Sally's like, cool. And we kind of learn throughout this that sign the Mimitar is like the equivalent of like an adolescent, despite the fact that he's thousands of years old eternal, like in terms of interest and things like that. It's definitely an unexpected twist. Uh, I did not anticipate seeing any members of the Hex like talking poetry with humanity. I don't think this is the sort of thing that's just going to go away. Okay? Like, I don't think this is, like, I think there's a purpose. I don't think you do that just to be quirky, <laughs> you know? Um, because it's not focused on enough just to be that, frankly, and it's not that kind of story. I suspect that the Hex, maybe it'll just be Sign the Mimitar, I don't know, but I suspect they will kind of turn on the Celestial and sort of turn on their judgment and actually say, like, no, actually, we've identified more value in humanity that you seem to see, that they may actually turn then and, and work against the Celestial. Um, it I feels like that's where it's building. I don't know, like, you share, if you share a passion for... Um, ah, oh, geez, now I can't. William Blake. <laughs> Maybe you're like, yeah, like this. Sally's cool. She likes William Blake just like me. Um, I'm gonna work with her instead of you. I see it. I see it going there. The other big thing that happens in Death to the Mutants is uh, we get some much needed confirmation that Crow is cool as hell. <laughs> All right, Crow is longtime leader of the Deviants. He is currently like not officially their leader, but I guess you know, obviously he's a important figure. He's like one of the oldest possible deviants. Um, he's so cool. Crow is just like all kinds of cool. Love everyone seeing this together. He's great in the Eternals and Kirby's Eternals. He's one of the most interesting characters in the original run. And uh, him showing up here, just just crushing it. Like Crow is Crow's life. Um, he uh, officially sort of solidifies a deviant mutant alliance, which I've been theorizing for a while as something that is going to come out of this event. It is here for this war. I suspect it will continue going. Um, Crow rules, and I will not hear otherwise. Even the progenitor agrees. Uh, importantly, there's also a really good Sigur Rós joke in this issue. Um, Blinking, you'll miss it. The most important thing that happens in Death of the Mutants is the Celestial passes every single Deviant. So it's not just Crow. We saw Crow get passed, and it was like, okay, yeah, like Crow, the coolest, of course he would pass him right? Like he passes Cyclops for being cool. Um, we've seen it a few times. The Celestial passes every single Deviant. Okay, that's a big deal, right? The, the Celestial Code, 
heretofore has been correct excess deviation, which has encouraged the Eternals for millennia to hunt and kill deviants lest they grow too strong. One thing that is learned in the Gillen and Isad Ribich run on Eternals is actually the deviants were the important ones the entire time, essentially and that they were just sort of curating deviant life for the Celestials to monitor. That the Eternals were just sort of a system. They weren't really ever the important ones, okay? Which is part of why Icarus is up in arms, right? And why he thinks they don't have a purpose. But this Celestial seems to be wearing that a little more openly. The Celestial who has been created by two Eternals and no Deviants, unless you count Mr. Sinister, who's a deviant of a different sort, I suppose, um, and is passing every single deviant. This is new and unexpected, and I don't totally know what the outcome is going to be other than to say, like, there are so many deviants. I mean, that's one thing that definitely goes, I think, underrated, is despite the Eternals' correction of excess deviations and sort of this curse of the deviants, um, in terms of the fact that they can develop into kind of these mindless monsters. You know, it's kind of the, the curse of their genetics. Um, there's a lot of them, <laughs> you know? If you're counting their numbers amongst mutants and amongst humans as life on Earth, that actually increases the odds tremendously that the progenitor could give a thumbs up or give a thumbs up to certain swaths of the Earth's population. Uh, so that was an interesting turn. That was an interesting turn. I mean, again, I've been theorizing throughout this, and I think where we're going with all this is Judgment Day. We're looking at an end of the Eternals as we know them kind of story. I think it's going to be an ascension of the Deviants kind of story. I mean, this is this is the long arc of where Eternals has been building. And then I think in terms of impact for mutants in Krakoa, again, if you add the Deviants to their rank, to their alliance, again, I'm, I'm not, and this, this comic talks about it a fair amount, but nobody quite cares to answer it directly. Um, I'm not saying deviants are literally Krakoans, neither is this comic, but they are saying, well, they're close enough, they can just use the Krakoan gates. Um, but definitely, you know, again, like, I think it's you treat them like they're cousins, essentially. But, uh, you know, an alliance with cousins like the deviants, again, adds to their numbers, adds to their rank, adds to their power, adds to their threat to, to the humans like Orcus, who are threatened by mutant kind. Um, that's where I think all this is going. That's why I think it's important that the Celestial passes them. That is ammo, I would say, in Icarus's belt in terms of getting people on his side to sort of shut down the current eternal system. There's going to be a massive change. Um, it's coming. All right? So those are the two Gillen-written issues today, Immortal X-Men number six and Death of the Mutants number two. I'll pause for a moment and check out what's going on here in the comments. <laughs> I'm seeing the comment here. Uh, yeah, who is Judas Traveler, and why does Orlando pull from these 90 comics no one reads? <laughs> uh, Steve Orlando does love 90s references. Uh, I would imagine it's because those are comics that they grew up on <laughs> or uh, have tremendous affinity for. There's a ton of 90s continuity callbacks in Marauders number 6. i got to say Marauders number 6... Probably my favorite issue of this Marauders run. This is by Steve Orlando, Andrea Bricardo, Matt Miller, Ariana Maher. It's a really good use of the Judgment Day uh, event to do a an issue that is focused on each one of the members of the team, uh, all of them dealing with their celestial judgment. 
individually. It also reintroduces Birdie, who previously in X-Men lore has been most well-known for calming down Sabretooth, which is referenced a few times here. Um, but her mutant ability is basically like psychic calming therapy. And uh, she joins, you know, all the members of Marauders dealing with her judgment. It calls, like with Tempo, it calls back to like her debut in X-Force, these sorts of things. Um, and yeah, we'll get to... <laughs> We'll get to Judas Traveler. It the issue reminds me of the classic X Factor. I think it's number eighty seven. Uh, the one written by Peter David. I think it's got written by Joe Quesada. It's called Psych Session or something to that effect. Um, but it's you know it's it's a very memorable issue where uh, it's not revealed until the end of it. But Doc Sampson is doing like straight up therapy sessions with all the members of the team, and it's very revealing in terms of what's going on with them. It has like one of the best Quicksilver pages of all time in terms of kind of how he views the world. It's really good character building. And Marauders uh, and Steve Orlando tap into that, definitely. I think with issue number six. I think it was really well done. Um, and again, like, for event tie-ins can often get lost in just sort of the shuffle of, like, well, let's reflect the action of this event. But it's not additive, and it can stall the, the book, and it's not really giving you what you want. This is a really smart way to use what's happening in the event, which is the Celestial judging everyone, and have it be additive and boost your own book and do a lot of character work in the process. Uh, I definitely appreciated that about it. Um, Steve uh, Orlando here, he is connecting Judas Traveler uh, to Orcus. Okay, this actually happened a while ago in the pages of X-Men Unlimited, which is increasingly important. Um, that is the Marvel Unlimited exclusive scrollable X-Men series. It is increasingly actually like tied into continuity and stuff, which is nice if you're reading it, maybe less so if you're not. Um, although I will say, even having seen them previously, like it's not like Marauders really, like if, if you hadn't read that, you didn't miss anything really other than knowing they were a part of Orcus. Um, we talked about this previously, but Juice Traveler uh, debuted, not debuted, but is probably most well-known for the Spider-Man clone saga in the 90s. They have a decent-sized role early on, trapping Spidey and maybe Ben and Carnage, like, in uh, in Ravencroft. Um, they're, like, weirdly powerful. I don't know their deal, really. Okay, when they show up in the Clone Saga, they just have, like, these godlike abilities. Uh, but Judas is definitely drinking the Orcus tea. Seems all in on, on continuing to support the messages of all the harm mutants are causing and that sort of thing. So... I, depending on how interesting <laughs> Marauders continues to be, uh, may need to dig deeper on Judas Traveler. But yeah, I mean, that's the connection. And I got to say, like, if you're, listen, I get um, feeling, you know, some tedious reference points in terms of, like, people pulling from 90s comics you don't enjoy. But I got to say, if you're an X-Men fan, like, you have to be prepared for lots of 90s continuity resurfacing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, X-Men were pretty big in the 90s. You might have heard about it. Uh, but also, like, we're just, that's where we are. It's 2022. A lot of the creators who grew up on that stuff are now of an age where they're writing the books, right? And that's the stuff that they're going to want to reference. Um, so <laughs> that is that is not going anywhere, I promise you. We'll see what comes of Judas Traveler. All right. The other tie-in that came out today was Wolverine number 24. Uh, my main thought on this is... Uh, Federico Vicentini, still good, still good. I enjoy their work on X-Deaths of Wolverine. Uh, this looked really nice. I thought the Adam Kubert cover, super cool, and Adam Kubert continues to be really underrated on this series. I enjoyed Wolverine uh, quite a bit. I, you know, this is 
it's a, it's like a backhanded compliment, I suppose, but I really like Percy's Wolverine when it's not heavily tied in to Percy's X-Force. Like when, when this run on Wolverine gets to do its own separate thing, which is what a solemn and Wolverine callback is, right? So this is Ten of Swords stuff. Like we're going all the way back to Ten of Swords. In that event, Wolverine and Solemn defeated uh, like a Bride of Hell and they stole the Muramasa Blades. They needed them obviously for the tournament. Um, now that, that Hellfire Bride, um, or whatever you want to call her, uh, she's back and wants to hunt them in the midst of the Judgment Day event. The Solemn Wolverine stuff is compelling. I enjoy this. Uh, I, I want to learn more about this. Again, I'm super invested in the Mutants of Morocco. It's one of my favorite things to come out of Ten of Swords. When this Wolverine event is uh, is focused on that stuff, or the event, when this Wolverine comic is focused on that stuff, which is kind of unique and original, I think it can be quite good. I do. Um, unfortunately, it then, like, every two or three issues comes back to being, like, X-Force Part 2, and it kind of just gets stuck, you know? It just gets really stuck. I mean, I th- yeah, I think part of the problem, too, with feeling like this is cool and exciting is, okay, Solemn's back. When did Tennis Wars happen? <laughs> what, what decade was that even? You know, it has been a minute. It has been a while, right? And again, this is, this is a constant, constant uh, challenge, I think, with these books. But just given the pacing and the reality of publication schedules and human memory... <laughs> like, you'd be forgiven for not being super excited about the return of Solemn, you know? You can slow play something to the point that you lose all enthusiasm, and I would not be blown away if that's what some folks felt here, although, again, I really like Tennis Sword Fallout. I like the fact that it's moving in this direction. It also, like, fairly effectively works into Judgment Day, you know? You get Wolverine's Judgment, you get then Wolverine and Solemn taking the Muramasa Blades to go try and kill the Celestial, which sounds exciting. I think at the end of this, the Progenitor made, I think he built a snowman? <laughs> like, he built a snowman Celestial to stop uh, to stop Wolverine and, and Solemn. If anybody interpreted that sequence of events differently, definitely let me know. But otherwise, I do think the Progenitor turned around and was just like, do you want to build a snowman? Right? <laughs> I think that's what happened. Um, otherwise, not a lot to take away from any of that. I don't. All right. So those are the comics I want to focus on. Oh, BT Dubs in She-Hulk number six. Uh, Nightcrawler asked Jen Walters to represent Krakoa. Uh, it's a fun little moment. If you picked up the issue because Nightcrawler's on it, on the cover, looking dapper as F, um, it's like two pages. <laughs> it's like two pages of Nightcrawler. And then it's just continuation of a, you know, a fairly interesting She-Hulk run. She-Hulk, big these days. Big most days, right? But popular these days as well. Um, but those are, there's the X-Men ties. Again, I have not finished New Mutants, so we'll read that sometime this week. So I don't have a heck of a lot to say there. It is not a Judgment Day tie-in. It, it feels like uh, kind of a stopgap issue. It's going to be Thunderbird and Ken um, looking for Scout, who's gone missing again. Again. thought we just did this. Um, but apparently it's happening again. So, all right, get in your questions, get in your thoughts. I'll address what I can. All right, we got a good good thought here from Jordan. Jordan says, I thought the Krakoa era was going to be more about moving forward. Marauders feels painfully tethered to the past, not only in terms of continuity pulls, but also in its tone and storytelling. I think that is a fair critique. Um, I think it can be applied to a decent amount of the Krakoa era. You know, I mean, I think it is 
it is so much easier said than done when you're working with these comics and these characters that have, that are decades upon decades old. I mean, it's both part of the fun of Marvel comics is you have a dense building interweaving continuity that like no other media can replicate, but it can also be a challenge where then you can just, yes, feel very much tethered to the past. I mean, that's, that's what the excitement of Hox Pox was. That's what the excitement of house of X and powers of 10 was, was just like, Oh, we're moving forward. Oh, we're doing something new, but like that's it's unique, right? Like that's why that's why it's so exciting. I mean, the thing about Krakoa as a whole is it's not that unique. Like conceptually, Krakoa in and of itself is not especially unique. The the mutants have had island nations before, right? We've had Utopia, we've had Genosha. That in and of itself is not that unique. And then you spiral in things like, okay, but it's all the mutants, including the villains. And oh, but we also have resurrection protocols. And that does set up new types of stories you can tell. I think when you read stuff like in X-Men Red, part of what is so exciting about it is like, show me a time in Marvel history where the mutants terraformed a planet and have a new civilization that they're working with that is all mutants and is the capital of the soul system. Like that's genuinely new stuff. That's exciting, right? You can get different kinds of stories out of that. Um, I don't mind, like, like even in that, though, I would say, like, Al Ewing is, is well known for continuity pulls throughout Marvel history, right? Like, that in and of itself is not a bad thing. He's calling back to 80s Storm. He's calling back to Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. He's doing all sorts of stuff like that, Um so it's not the fact that it's like, oh, it's not new because it's referencing old comics. You can do that and still feel new. I, I think the critique is valid for some of these comics in terms of just like, well, this just feels like an X-Men comic, right? And, that, and that's something I've said about, I think, late period Marauders in the Duggan run. I think um, the Duggan X-Men in some ways, uh, definitely other books as well, where it's just been like, you could plop, if you could take the book and you could plop it into the Utopia era X-Men with it, you know, just you change the word Krakoa for Utopia, essentially, that's a problem, right? That's a problem for me as a reader, because I do also want to invest in the new status quo and it feeling new and exciting and, and just different, right? I want it to feel unique. I want it to feel different than stuff that has come before. Because again, when you read too many comics, <laughs> repetition becomes a problem, right? Things lose their luster. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm on board with the with the critique that you're saying here. I thought this and in Marauders, you know, I've been touch and go. Definitely, I think it's finding its footing. I really thought this issue was one of its best. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying. Let's see. Um, what does Legion of X have to do to win you over? Uh, like, okay, I'm not gonna be facetious. I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this truly. Um, I, I love a lot of Seisberger comics. Like, let's be clear. Like, I was pretty in on Way of X until it kind of fell apart a little bit and lost me a bit. But, like, generally I was positive on Way of X and the Onslaught stuff. I think there were some huge misses. But I like a lot of the concepts and the efforts. Uh, Legion of X is a really tough sell. I just, that, that book, like, pick a lane. I guess that would be the thing. Is like, I want issues of Legion of X to pick a lane. I think the scattered approach and trying to tell, like, 12 different character stories is just not working. I don't know what this book wants to be. I don't know what it wants to do. Um, I think whereas, you know, I, I constantly praise Vidal's work on New Mutants because she is uh, riffing in the Claremontian school of, hey, here's uh, four plots 
and they vaguely maybe intersect, but I'm going to weave them like I'm, you know, spinning plates on one finger and make it work. And it's this kind of storytelling magic that when it works, it is just glorious. Legion of X is the opposite of that for me, right? All the plates are crashing to the ground. So I think that for me, the thing that would sell me back in on it, which would not be hard to do, I would love to, would be pick a lane and, and be clearer about the mission statement because I don't know what this book wants to be. Um, and it's, it's, I can't hone in on anything because of that. Uh, let's see. Let There Be Witches said, I need Nightcrawler out of the council. He's not add anything, not even for the soap opera kind of drama. <clears throat> Listen, Nightcrawler's my favorite. Literally my favorite mutant. That said, I kind of agree. <laughs> I think I actually really agree. Um, Nightcrawler might be the least interesting council member. And I hate saying that. I truly, truly hate saying that. I love Nightcrawler. But it feels like the only thing that creators quite know what to do with um, with Nightcrawler is to like have him come in and be like, "Oh, I don't know about uh, God in this one." It's like, okay, we get it. He's got he's got some religious ties. I know it's a part of the character, but like, there's a lot more to Nightcrawler than just that. He's this swashbuckling teleporter who grew up looking like a fuzzy blue elf, according to Wolverine. Right? Um, I'm kind of with you. Kind of with you. Might be time. It, it would be nice to see a little Nightcrawler focus in Legion of X and have him, like, say, I want out of the council. Here's why. And have that be a part of the story. Because, I, yes, it does kind of feel like it's time. I'm seeing a note here that uh, Vidal's pronouns were they, them. If I said otherwise, uh, my apologies. I apologize for getting that wrong. I do know that, and I should be using they, them pronouns. That is my mistake. I said otherwise. <clears throat> Grayson asks in the super chat here. Thanks for your support, Grayson. Uh, when do you think we'll see the Chimera mutants? Well, technically, we have seen a couple, kind of, that Sinister teased in the pages of Hellions. Certainly, certainly the Sins of Sinister will have some Chimeras. How you, how you could have a Sins of Sinister event without Chimeras is beyond me. So as early as next year, will we see any in Judgment Day? Will Sinister need to bust out some chimeras to save the day, as it were, leading to a Sins of Sinister event? It's a theory I could get behind. It's definitely a theory I could get behind, right? If they're like, if the mutants are suddenly losing... Because right now, as it stands, the mutants aren't losing the war, really. You know, they're battling the Eternals, but things are kind of going their way. They prevented resurrection from being destroyed. Um, <clears throat> all of Earth might be destroyed by a Celestial... But beyond that, like, if, if we get to a point where it's, like, the progenitor's, like, thumbs down, on average, thumbs down, and nobody knows how to stop him, and then Sinister's like, I have an idea, and he rolls out his chimeras, that'd be a cool moment. I'm here for that. Not gonna put, like, a lot of money on that happening in this event, but I like the general idea. All right, quick sip, and I'm gonna get to the rest of these questions. <laughs> is the progenitor actually a mean psychiatrist Xavier asks that's a good question Jesse asks how do you think immortal X-Men will end um the question to me is will it end with Sinister resetting the timeline because again remember we're in a period right now where Destiny knows Sinister's got Moira's he knows he's used she knows he's using Moira's and she is trying to scheme in such a way that Sinister does not do another reset because if he does another reset, she won't know. 
in that recycled timeline what's going down, um, at least as far as we know right now. So the question is, will it end with Sinister doing another reset, leading to a new Sins of Sinister where he has learned from the events of Judgment Day how things are going to go down and then uses that to his advantage? Um, given the fact that Gillen is writing both, I could definitely see that, where like Sinister watches how Judgment Day plays out, hits the reset button, then uses the building of the progenitor and stuff like that to to acquire his own means of power and sort of ascension. Um, I don't see Destiny winning. I mean, I think that's the thing, is like that's why this is the Destiny of X, is she has the chance, but then the fact that we're shifting out of it relatively so quickly you know into a sins i don't know if sins i still don't know if sins of it's sinister is an era or an event and it kind of does matter at least to people like me <laughs> right but i that's kind of where i see immortal x-men ending it's got it's, it has to end on a note of the battle between destiny and sinister and their visions i personally would dig it if it actually meant them like, like we still need an answer back to the immortal x-men number one questions right like we still need answers to like what did Destiny whisper, whisper to Sinister? You know, can they actually work together in some ways? I think it might be the most interesting outcome. We need an answer to that question. We're going to get it, I imagine. And then the question is, will Sinister reset using Moira and and kind of then give us a twist on Judgment Day going forward into future X-Men books? I think that could be cool. Let's see. You should guest on Simply Amazing. They'd love you. I don't know what that is, but thank you. I am a great guest. I think people don't realize that. I'm a great guest. <laughs> Such a good guest. So available. Couldn't be more available. Right? Send me it. Listen, I'm at Comic Book Herald on Twitter and Instagram. I have a website called comicbookherald.com. Here's the YouTube channel. You can comment right here. So available. So available. Could not be more out there. Um, but thank you <laughs> for that nice note. Seeing a lot, a, a few comments about disappointment that nothing's been done with hope. Uh, Hope Summers being added to the council. I mean, yeah, like she joined the council. We had a little focus on her. And then obviously we're in the middle of an event. Um, I mean, mostly right now, Hope is like Exodus fuel, you know, like kind of fuel to tell interesting Exodus stories. I do like the dynamic between Exodus, this uber religious zealot and his admiration for Hope as the, as still as the mutant messiah. I think that dynamic's incredibly interesting. But yeah, like a little more hope focus would be a good thing. I mean, that that's one of the challenges and definitely one of the problems with the Immortal X-Men approach is, okay, each issue is primarily focused on one character, but you have 12 that we're interested in, and that means the rest of them are getting shortchanged in some ways, you know? Um, I would imagine by the end of this, it'll all round out, though. Do you think the new Captain Britain book will stay part of the X-Men line? Is there a new Captain Britain book? Has that been announced? Because that is news to me. Um, if so, yes, it has to be. It's, it's Betsy, and she is a mutant. It would be so weird if it wasn't, I think. I started to trust Destiny as of Inferno, but it seems she's only interested in a future where Mystique is alive instead of actually fighting for her people. What do you think, Dave? Uh, yeah, I don't mind that for her. That's great. Um, you know, she's really only interested in keeping her wife alive, despite seeing no future where that's possible. I think that is a really rich, dramatic irony. Um... But yeah, I mean, in terms of like, in terms of like trusting, like, well, who has the mutant's best interest at heart, you know, at this point, like, that's a short list, you know, that's a real short list. I feel like Emma Frost is kind of 
kind of, that's kind of why people love her on the Quiet Council. Like, it feels like maybe she's closest to that of anyone on the Quiet Council. I mean, Cyclops and Jean certainly have that sort of credibility. Um, maybe Kate a little bit, but Kate's not a power player, really, on the Quiet Council. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It is interesting. Like, that. yeah, that's Destiny's focus for sure. I don't mind that. Would you like to see a sinister solo series where he deals with Dr. Stasis? Uh, maybe not dealing with Dr. Stasis, but, like, a sinister solo series is always in my top probably two, three, you know, desired comics. <laughs> Definitely on the Marvel side. So no questions asked. I mean, I thought that's that was my pitch for Kieran Gillen coming back to the X-Men office was writing a sinister solo, and obviously Immortal X-Men is in some ways kind of that, even though it's not a solo. Um, I don't think you need a Sinister Solo right now because Gillen is writing a very good and very relevant Sinister in the midst of the Krakoa era. I think doing a separate solo Sinister thing would probably be a mistake. Um, but in general, I'm always on board with that. Always on board with that. Uh, let's see. Take a handful more questions. Seeing a super chat here from Timothy. Thanks so much for your donation. Much, much appreciated. Let's see. I will cover the Amazing Spider-Man tie-in to the Hellfire Gala next week. I still have not read Amazing Spider-Man number 900. Uh, but, speaking of milestones, I have read Alex Ross's Fantastic Four Full Circle graphic novel out, I think officially today, from Abrams Comics Arts, and it is awesome. It is so cool. Alex Ross is a living legend. Uh, if you're a Marvel fan, you probably know them from their painted work in the pages of Marvels with Kurt Busiak, all-time great Marvel graphic novel. Uh, Alex Ross also did Kingdom Come with Mark Wade has done uh, covers for the likes of Mortal X-Men, currently doing covers for Black Panther, uh, one of the best comics artists of all time, definitely one of the most influential. And uh, they did uh, a graphic novel recently called Full Circle. It's Fantastic Four, Four Full Circle. It is not published by Marvel. It's this weird licensing thing where Marvel has licensed some Marvel stuff over to Abrams Comics Arts, but Abrams produces really good stuff, and uh, Altros wrote and drew this, which I'm always a little nervous when it's like, you know, somebody who's really acclaimed as an artist and they're writing their own thing, that does not always pay dividends. Sometimes it can be really weird and bad. This is not that. It's great. It looks amazing. It's one of the coolest looking comics. It's a huge, huge Jack Kirby and Stan Lee Fantastic Four throwback. Uh, I would encourage you reading it first off. I think it's one of the best comics of the year. But also, if you're going to read it and you haven't read This Man, This Monster, the classic Fantastic Four number 51 by Stan and Jack, uh, that is a must. That is a must. It is like a direct follow-up to that classic Fantastic Four comic. So that, if we're talking milestones, if we're talking continuity nods, that's the one I would recommend today. All right, I'll do one more question. Let's... Okay, do you agree with the judges so far? Definitely not. <laughs> Definitely not. I, this judge criteria is is really wild um, and very strange and confusing. I think some of it is kind of funny and enjoyable, uh, but in general, I'm kind of baffled by it. I mean, there's the, you know, I've, I've kind of joked about it just being like, oh, whoever's tough and cool, you know, they get a thumbs up. I guess the kind of the general underlying thing is like, whoever's actually being, living some truth, it seems like, you know, doesn't have a front, doesn't, isn't pretending to be someone else. Like they just are who they are through and through. I feel like that's the clearest sort of thumbs up criteria right now. Um, but I don't think that's at all what the message of this book is going to be or what this event is about is like, be yourself. <laughs> like that doesn't feel like on theme or on brand at all. 
but that's that's you know no so no I don't I don't agree with the judges but I I feel like that I listen I've said before I, you know mainly I can't agree with this judge because I know this judge would give me a thumbs down I would get the biggest thumbs down from the progenitor right for sure I'd be like can I be on your podcast thumbs down no chance right it would be terrible okay final one I'm gonna choose not to answer the questions from 69mega.com although. Big thumbs up for me <laughs> on the wreck there. Uh, James asks in the Super Chat, thank you for your support, James. How do you think the progenitor will judge Earth the great machine? Okay, yeah, so that was the big thing in Death and Mutants number two. It kind of ends with all of a sudden the progenitor is talking to our humble narrator who has been revealed to be Earth, you know, the machine that resurrects Eternals, and the progenitor is like, I'm judging you too. Um, I think the machine is for sure getting a thumbs down, right? And, the, like, the machine is a little broken, right? The Eternals, I think, again, I think a big message of this is like the Eternal system is broken. There are problems with it. The fact that it needs to kill humans in order to resurrect Eternals. I mean, that's another possible outcome is less fall of the Eternals and more fixing the Eternals where it's like, what if the progenitor's like, hey, I'm going to fix you machine and make it so you stop killing humans when you resurrect Eternals. Just do it without that, (laughs) like the mutants do. That's another really possible outcome, I think. And that, you know, it would be interesting. It would be interesting. Okay. That's it. I think that's it. I think we did it. Good job, everybody. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for the conversation. It was highly, highly enjoyable. I'm Dave. You can find my stuff at comicbookherald.com. Again, incredibly available. <laughs> I gotta stop saying that. <laughs> but I appreciate everybody hopping on live. It's very fun to talk comics with you. I will be back next week. Definitely to talk X-Men Red and uh, whatever else comes out. I don't know. I haven't really looked at the schedule yet. So thanks for joining. And we'll see you next week. Oh, subscribe. To, uh, I don't know, to Matt Draper does good videos. Um, who else? Who else? Uh, every every Kind of Geek does good videos. Um, uh, who else do I like? Uh, Blurred Without Fear, got a plug. Always willing to guest on my show. Uh, and I'm Dave. You can subscribe to Comic Book Herald. Thanks for joining.